All right, well, uh, I ended last week with uh, the elephant in the room, the Ten Commandments. And uh, we have to talk about them. We can only ignore them for so long. And I think, really, the reason that uh, we can't ignore them for too long is because so many people in evangelical circles have given the Ten Commandments uh, or, or, or placed them kind of front and center. And I believe that they not only have made a bigger deal out of them than, um, lost my train of thought there. Uh, we've, given it, we've, we've made them a bigger deal than the New Testament does, and we've also made them out to be something that they're not. They are something, for sure. And, uh, and we do have a relationship with them, for sure. But I think that uh, oftentimes our understanding is mistaken. And um, so let's talk about it. It's interesting, when you scour the New Testament and the teachings of the apostles, we find that they have given almost no attention to them. Do you find that interesting? Uh, when we give them so much attention. They have plenty of attention in Exodus and Deuteronomy, and they're referred to quite often uh, in the Old Covenant, but when we look at the New Testament, they are, for the most part, discussed in passing. Not that they're not important, or at least the moral um, elements addressed in them, those things are important, but uh, some other things about them uh, have no application whatsoever in the New Covenant. So we want to address them, and we want to do it appropriately, um, yeah, and, and before I start, I was, I was told, or asked rather, to make sure that uh, Jenny was paying attention. I can't, don't see her now. There she is. She's, her hands are raised, so she's paying attention. So, yeah, she has a number of questions, and I'm sure so many of you do as well. Here's the question I think that needs to be answered, and it's this, what role do the Ten Commandments have in the New Covenant? What role do they play what regard should we give to them? However, uh, we, however we do answer this question, the answer must be uh, controlled by what the New Testament says about them. It has to be controlled, okay? Because we don't have the liberty and we certainly don't have the authority uh, to answer this question apart from how the Holy Spirit has dealt with it uh, in the context of the New Covenant. Uh, our conclusions have to align with his, uh, he alone has the right, hopefully that we understand as Christians, that he alone has the right to prescribe uh, what the role of anything is with his new covenant people because uh, he's the Lord of the covenant, amen? Uh, we did not make this covenant up ourselves, uh, it's the Lord's, he ratified it, and he alone gets to set the terms, the conditions, or however else you wanna describe a covenant, uh, the agreement, if you will, between us and God. And, uh, and in fact, when it comes to covenants in general, the new covenant uh, stands out kind of mysteriously. Uh, and it's not that we didn't, uh, like Moses, go on the mountain of God and, and then bring this covenant to the people and then uh, have this corporate agreement and all of these other things. Uh, the new covenant is very unusual uh, and beautiful and wonderful in so many ways. And, and, but that's not for so much our discussion today. It is a covenant, nonetheless. Now, I've heard a number of people 
and perhaps so of you, even scholars that have given well-stated answers to the question that we have here, but many of them really fail to answer the question according to uh, what the New Testament says about them. Most of them uh, are drawing from the Old Covenant to answer a New Covenant question, which is absolutely impossible, and we want to avoid that uh, altogether. Um, You find that when people answer the question, you find yourself being under the law when they're done. How many of you experienced that? (laughs) Emphatically, so, (laughs) with Gabe, so. But as we looked at last week, uh, here again as a reminder is what the New Testament says about the Old Covenant, remembering that the Ten Commandments is the Old Covenant. The Ten Commandments, the Old Covenant, have been fulfilled, abolished, they've been wiped out or canceled, depending on what translation you have, taken away, annulled, or set aside, and made obsolete. Uh, And I don't know how anybody uh, reads the book of Hebrews and comes to any other conclusion than obsolete, as Hebrews 8.13 says. Yeah. Now, if you haven't been with us uh, of late or listening online, you're going to need to listen to, the, to at least the last two weeks for the sake of context. Now, along with these conclusions, we need to remember what Paul said about the believer's relationship to the law, which is this. He says, we're dead to the law. We're not under the law. We've been delivered from the law, and the law has no jurisdiction, no dominion over us. So however you answer that question, it has to be governed by these statements here and these ones here, amen? We can't contradict those things. These are stated so clearly and so consistently throughout the New Testament um, that we can't ignore them. The law is canceled and we're outside. We are beyond its jurisdiction. So we have to answer in light of these New Testament conclusions lest we end up in some theological dreamland called heresy. Amen? All right. A nightmare, yeah. So again, what role do the Ten Commandments have in the New Covenant? Now, uh, (coughs) excuse me, at least nine uh, of the commandments uh, certainly have a role in the New Testament because all but one uh, is repeated uh, or clearly implied by New Covenant authors. So resting on the Sabbath, as we've been talking about, as a command is not carried over into the new covenant in any way, shape, or form. Also, by itself, the Sabbath is not a moral issue, whereas all of the other commandments are moral in nature. Keeping the Sabbath is only moral if God commands you to keep it, and he is not commanding new covenant people to keep it. Okay, It was only applied to Israel when the law was in place. But Jesus, we've discovered, has taken that out of the way. He's made that, uh, he's done away with it. But all of the other commandments, they are moral in and of themselves, uh, whether you are told to do it or not, they're moral. Uh, Because by nature they express uh, what we would call morally objective absolutes that are rooted in the nature of God Uh, whether they're stated as part of a covenant or not. Now, um, 
understand that the moral aspects of the commandments have been around long before the Ten Commandments were written on stone. In fact, when you read Genesis chapter 1 through Exodus chapter 19, you can almost identify all of the, the Ten Commandments uh, without them ever being stated in a, in a written form. They're there. And man was accountable to them. Accountable to them. Man knew that they were the difference between right and wrong according to what is stated in the commandment. They knew that right was better than wrong, and they knew of some impending consequence for violating those things. And that's a discussion that we'll have more later. Um, so those commands, uh, what is implied in them, what is uh, discussed there, they existed beforehand, uh, and they were applicable to all people. And they continued uh, to apply to all people everywhere, even if they were not in a covenant relationship with God based upon a theocracy, as Israel was. Israel was under a theocracy. God rule, of course, by his word, through his prophets and kings and so forth. And they still apply to all people everywhere today because they are absolute moral truths. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or if you're a pagan who lives in the deepest, darkest jungle in the most remote recesses of the world. If you're created in the image of God, you are accountable to these objective realities. And it really is the, the moral uh, nature of the law that has to be addressed in regard to the nine commandments. Now, just for accountability, these uh, nine commandments are stated or they're implied in the following New Testament passages. Uh, we have worshiping God alone, Romans 1.25. We have no carved images, Romans 1.23. 1 Timothy 1.20 and James 2.7 talk about blasphemy, which is another way of using the Lord's name uh, in vain. Um, here, of course, it's using it as a cuss word. Romans 13.9 has five of the commandments from the second table. We talk about two tables of the law. The first table has four commandments, which regard man's responsibility to God. And then the second table, the last six commandments, is our relationship to one another under accountability to God. Okay, and so the second table uh, are those. Romans 13.9 has five of them. And then Ephesians chapter 6, 1 through 3, uh, brings up honoring your father and your mother. Now, the, f the first three commandments... Uh, prescribing our moral responsibility to God, they're not, they're not stated exactly like they are um, in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, but they're clearly stated and they're understood in those passages and then in many other places. But the Sabbath, as we've said, it's neither stated or implied. Uh, it, it's just an issue that's completely silent uh, in the New Testament. It doesn't exist in the covenant because God didn't install it there. Now, if you have the, the New King James Version, uh, five of the last six commandments are recorded in Romans 13, 9. Uh, the fifth commandment is the one that's omitted, honor your father and mother, but that's over in Ephesians 6 anyhow. Uh, all of the other modern translations omit both honor your father and mother and that you should bear no false uh, witness against your neighbor. But again, while they're not explicitly stated here uh, in those modern translations, 
Uh, the two commands are implied in, in many other places, okay? Like Romans 1.30, uh, Ephesians 6, 1 through 3, Colossians chapter 3, verse 9, and then uh, a host of other places. It's everywhere. So that's nine of the commandments stated in the New Testament. Only the fourth is omitted. So when I talk about the commandments from here on out, I'm talking about nine. You can capitalize it if you want. I'm not going to give it an official uh, title or position because it just doesn't have, it's not given that in the new covenant, okay? We have other principles for us that are far more powerful than a commandment, which we'll get to later. So I think we kind of have to answer our main question by way of two other questions. And you guys love questions, right? Okay. Who said sure? All right. Should have expected that. I did not roll my eyes. The scriptures say to honor your elders. (laughs) So, uh, I'll pay for that later too. The nine commandments. Uh, Why are these nine commandments stated in the New Testament if they've been canceled out by Jesus? And then what is our relationship to the commandments themselves? Okay. Um, Now, in a general sense, uh, both of these questions can be answered by these two passages I'm about to give you. The first passage has to do with the behavior of the children of Israel in the wilderness uh, after the law was given and how God dealt with their sins uh, shortly afterward. Paul says, now all of these things happened to them as examples, bad examples, uh, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the earth have come, okay? So Paul says their story was recorded for two reasons. It was for our example and for admonition. So the way that Israel uh, behaved and the way that God dealt with that behavior reveals God's disdain for evil when you look at the context, idolatry, sexual morality, tempting and challenging God, and, and, and complaining. Don't complain. <laughs> Not good. Read numbers. Yeah. So the example of Israel in the wilderness provides an example, okay, of what not to do and how not to behave. But it's an example nonetheless. How many of you guys learn from people's mistakes? Just a couple of you. That's great. Uh, yeah, no, no. Uh, a bad example is a good example, right? Uh, We want our children to see bad examples of people falling on their face. Uh, We see that in the Psalms as well. Uh, You read Psalm 1, and David is bringing our attention to these kinds of men versus these kinds of men. And uh, and then you you come to uh, the Proverbs, and, and, and Solomon is saying, my son, I want you to pay attention to this fool, and I want you to pay attention to this wise man. This fool has something to teach you. And so does this wise man. Okay, so we, we, we need bad examples. They're healthy for us, uh, as long as we're learning the opposite, learning what not to do from them. Um, yeah. Paul also says that the story was recorded for admonition. Uh, that is to serve as a warning and to provide moral wisdom. Okay, to provide moral wisdom. Uh, by their story, we understand God's position on certain moral behavior. Uh, We know what displeases him, and in turn, we know what it is that pleases him. Amen? 
Okay, so those stories are there. Paul says, all that was written there, and the context is the children of Israel in the wilderness for our learning, our example, and our admonition. In Romans 15, 4, he says, for whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we, through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. How many guys could use hope once in a while? Okay. Yeah, so the context of Romans 15 is interesting. It follows in the logical context of Romans 13, where Paul addresses the supreme ethic of love as it's demonstrated in the moral law of God. Now, the, you know, he, he it seems to break away. I, I actually think that the, that section in Romans 13 should be in chapter 14, uh, because it's kind of the uh, it's, it's the, the, the virtue that helps lead us into the next discussion. It doesn't really follow well on the heels of, of obeying government and, and so forth uh, in, in the first part. But in the chapter 14 and 15 is about uh, basically loving your brother in spite of some of his weaknesses and receiving him regardless of how he is. And so he's elevating the, the supreme ethic of love uh, as the, the governing principle within the new covenant living, okay? Uh, love, he's saying, should be the most evident thing among God's people where we ought to be striving, he's saying, for the ultimate good of others for their edification. Uh, he says this should be happening without self-interest as we have an example as he uses in uh, Romans 15, of Jesus' example in Psalm 69.9, who was his whole life uh, willing to be inconvenienced that he might be a blessing to others and provide an example to us. Okay. Did you notice that in the Gospels? That Jesus is always being inconvenienced. He's always being intruded upon. He's always, always, when he's trying to rest, he's made to work. When he's trying to grieve, uh, he's made to serve. And how many times does Jesus complain? No, but his disciples frequently complained. <laughs> and he says, look, no, 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 no. I have, I have compassion on them. My gut wrenches for them, literally, in the Greek. Uh, and I want to serve them. They're like sheep without a shepherd. And uh, so he healed their sicknesses. He fed them. He, so we have this example in Jesus who was convenient so that he could be a blessing to others and be an example to us. So Paul, in, in saying what he says in verse four of chapter 15, is in backed up by what is said in the Old Testament. And so what he's doing is he's reaching back to the Old Testament to provide moral wisdom for new covenant living. Um, he says, for our learning and for our hope. Two good roles of the Old Covenant for our sakes. Learning, warning, Admonition. Let's look closer at our question. Why are nine of the commandments stated in the New Testament? Uh, other than what we've already discussed, let's go ahead and look at Romans 13, 8 through 10 by itself here. Paul says, Owe no man, owe no one anything except to love one another. Now there's the, the commandment right there. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments you shall, and he mentioned some of them, and he says all the ones that say you shall not, sins of omission and commission, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Love. Notice that Paul never instructs us to keep the law in the passage. He only references the law in regard to what it says. But the imperative uh, that we find from Paul is to owe no man anything but to love. And he says kind of, and by the way, uh, love, he says, fulfills the law. The moral demands of God's law are fulfilled by love. Okay? So Paul doesn't instruct us to keep the law. In fact, Paul never once tells the church to keep the law or to walk in its precepts. Isn't that interesting? Never tells us to keep the law or to walk in its precepts. Not once. I think that's interesting. So verse 9, uh, in referencing the commandments, is actually just a statement of fact. It's not a, a prescription for what we ought to do, though it's of course, the moral implications are implied there. Paul's instruction here is to love others, and he says, as much as we already love ourselves, just as Jesus taught his disciples, and the result will be that the standard of God's moral law will be upheld. So if we were to take all of our self-love, which our culture loves to tell us to do, uh, and bestow it on others, we would fulfill all the demands of God's perfect moral standard. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. What's that, what's that saying about us? <laughs> you know, if you were to take all of your self-love, all the love that you have for yourself, and you were to turn it away from self, which I think it's toxic when it's turned into self, but you were to turn it away from self, and lavish it on your neighbor, then all of the moral demands of God's commands would be fulfilled. Yeah. You know, you don't have to be a student of the law. You don't have to know all of its in and outs. Actually, you can be quite ignorant of everything stated in the law, but if you truly love people, you will unknowingly fulfill everything that it demands. So what is it that you really need to do? You need to love. And that's actually the hardest thing sometimes for us to do. The law is simply a description of what love does and what love does not do. It, it describes the behavior of love in positive and negative terms. You know, love honors others because that's loving. Not just your parents, of course. I mean, all people, because they're created in the image of God, they, they're worthy of honor, okay? but specifically our parents, but that's what love does. Love does not commit adultery. Love doesn't murder. Love doesn't steal. Love doesn't bear false witness. And love doesn't covet because those are things not loving to others. But you know what they are. That's, uh, that's self-love will actually do all those things in order to preserve or please self, right? Yeah. So why are nine of the commandments mentioned to New Covenant believers, well, I believe, as we have the example here and in the Gospels to show the supremacy of love as the greatest moral virtue that fulfills the highest moral standard, the best. But then also, love is an interesting thing. Love ensures that obedience to God is properly motivated. Properly motivated. You know, we learn from Paul, learn a lot of things from Paul, in Philippians chapter two, that someone can obey the law with their outward behavior. Somebody can pick up the Ten Commandments and they can do pretty well, at least in their outward behavior. They can obey those things. 
but they can do that and have no love in their heart and in turn be void of true righteousness. So how about that? Keep all the terms of the covenant, but be lost because the lack of love. Someone may do the right thing, but be motivated by the wrong thing, which ultimately disqualifies one's obedience. That's why Jesus said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's the greatest commandment. He said the second is like it. And then he said, to love your neighbor as yourself. So love protects our obedience from false motives. Love makes our obedience legitimate, okay, and honoring. So it's not by, and here it is, it's not by a legal obligation that we align ourselves with the commandments. That's not really our objective in the new covenant at all. Love is, love for God, and then love for our, our neighbors, for others, by which the law is consequentially fulfilled. Understand, those that were walking in love before the Ten Commandments were given, uh, we might uh, cite Enoch, for example. He was fulfilling the law before it was a law. There was just no, he had no legal relationship to it at all. Okay. In fact, love is the only way to fulfill the law. Now, for me, this begs for another question. Uh, before we give an, exa- an explanation for our moral duty to the commandments. This is the question. What is our relationship to the commandments? What is our relationship to the commandments? Uh, Nine of the commandments, as we've said, are clearly affirmed in the new covenant, but things are very different uh, now as far as we relate to them. First, let's, let's affirm what our relationship is not. What is not our relationship to those things? As we've kind of been talking about a little bit, the new covenant, in the new covenant, we have no legal relationship to the commandments. That is, we're not legally bound to them like Israel was in the old covenant, in the old covenant. Uh, Paul says that the new covenant believer is not under the law. As we've said, we've died to the law, and so the law has no jurisdiction over us. That can only mean that we don't have a legal obligation to its precepts. But when God gave the law to Israel in the form of a covenant, he gave it to them in a governmental context called a theocracy that included a legal and judicial framework with strict penalties. Have you read Exodus and Leviticus? Yeah. In the old covenant, the commandments were to be strictly enforced. If you broke the law, you faced serious consequences from man, a number of which were capital in nature. I think, there's, I think there's 14, if I remember right, capital crimes in the Old Covenant, uh, many of which I'm very thankful that they're not current. But there's a couple I wish that were current. Um, that's for another discussion. Uh, so there were consequences for disobedience. And for continued disobedience, uh, God promised divine consequences consisting of physical and material curses, uh, which Israel became very acquainted with. But also, for obedience to the law, uh, God promised great physical and material blessings, which Israel really never experienced. The kind of promises that were, ble- uh, that were the kind of promises given in the law, uh, Israel never got to experience. They didn't. Uh, and those promises are amazing, because what they would enjoy is uh, none of their babies would die in the womb. 
They would never face famine or pestilence or any of those things. If they obeyed the law according to the covenant, uh, they would have blessings beyond, and they, they never experienced that. But these legal and penal aspects of the commandments, they do not carry over into the new covenant. Uh, when Christ died on the cross, we know he canceled our guilt, okay, the, the law's claims against us, and then he imputed, he transferred his righteousness to us. So his death paid our penalty, and his blood both washed away our sins and then ratified a new covenant. So legal is not the nature of our relationship to the commandments. Okay, our covenant with God is based upon uh, no legal system. Okay, as Paul said again, we're not under the law, under its dominion. Okay, so our relationship to the law is on something else. Does anybody recall what Paul said? You're not under the law, you're under grace, under grace. Remember, John recorded that uh, the law came through Moses, law implying legal, penal, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, a different covenant based upon different things. So the commandments now have no legal status and they have to be interpreted through the lens of grace, okay? They're not legal, but they are moral. How many of you guys struggle with the difference between legal and moral? Yeah. I think believers struggle with it the most uh, because we are striving for an ultimate morality, are we not? We're striving to be like Christ, who, who represents, who is, not represents, but who is uh, you know, purity in itself. But the differences are real. Let me give an example. Uh, you know, worshiping any God you choose making any idol you like, blaspheming your creator, getting an abortion, committing adultery, coveting your neighbor's wife, and dishonoring your parents are all perfectly legal in America. But are they moral? Say that louder, please. I just want to <laughs> confirm. Okay. No, no. But understand, for the old covenant people living under Israel's theocracy, these things were not only immoral, but they were illegal. In fact, the death penalty followed the violation of at least five of them. The death penalty for five of them. Okay. They weren't just illegal, they were morally outrageous, as they should be for us. Okay. Outrageous. Yeah. But in the new covenant, they do not carry with them the legal ramifications. Understand, the greatest consequences that the church can divvy out for unrepentant, immoral people is expulsion, not execution. Aren't you thankful? I'm thankful that I don't have to make a decision on somebody's life. Okay, that's something I can leave in God's hands. So if we have no legal relationship to the law, what sort of relationship do we have to the commandments? I think you know the answer to that, okay? It's, it's moral not legal, okay? The commandments are moral absolutes because they're rooted in the moral nature of God, and so the moral standards in the law apply to all people in all places for all time because all people are created in his moral image. So we have no obligation or legal relationship rather to the commandments. It does not mean that immoral things are somehow permissible for people living in the new covenant or that there's nothing wrong with violating those moral absolutes. Amen? Yeah. Any deviation from what is represented in the commands 
deviates from the character of God, the very thing that we're trying to be conformed to. Yeah. So we have a more relationship to the commandments, but no legal. So now when we look at the commandments and when we look at the old covenant, I have to end now. So whatever we do with the old covenant, we cannot look at it as though we're in the old covenant. That would be a grave mistake. We have to look back on that and, and look through grace to see what kind of ethical wisdom we can draw from it outside of a legal context. Okay? That's what I want to talk about with you next week. How do we use the Old Testament for new covenant ethical wisdom? Okay? I hope that you're not thoroughly confused by my presentation this morning. Um, go ahead and stand up and we'll pray. Again, if people have questions, um, always ready to talk. You guys are such good sports. All right, let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that um, it brings such clarity. And what we need to do is we need to be really masters of context so that we can uh, understand what you meant in every context of where you said it. And so, Lord, as we continue to keep all of these things in their proper context, I pray that you'd use that to encourage us. And, um, Lord, that you would be more pleased. So, Lord, thank you for your word. And, Lord, I thank you for my church family. Um, Lord, it is a sweet privilege to be a part of this family, to serve this family. And, Lord, of late, to be served by them. And uh, it's humbling, and I'm just so grateful. And uh, so thank you for them, Lord. Pray that you'd lavish your grace upon them and uh, that your word would continue to come alive uh, and energize them, Lord, for this life that you've called us to. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, love you guys.